Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome back to another episode of C is for Creepy. Thank you so much to everyone who listened to last week's episode. It's been great seeing all of the downloads and listens. It's so amazing to see. It is. And, you know, like this is one of the highlights of our week. Absolutely. Today, my leg was asleep and I decided to risk it. <laughs> and, yeah, no, I fell over and I knocked over my lamp and my husband slept through it. So, fabulous. Just at least I had this to look forward to. <laughs> I I agree. And like after this week, I find with both of our jobs, summer is just very strenuous. Yeah, summer is hard. So it's so nice to be like, okay, it's Friday night. We can have a bevy. We get to talk about murder and we get to talk about ghosts. It's it's such a great thing. So thank you to everybody who listens and makes us not feel so lonely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so great. And shout out, we still got listeners in Belgium. We still got listeners in the U.S. and some in the U.K. It's so great seeing all of the international love. Yeah, that's wonderful. So what is your pee? So this week for pee, I'm going to be covering plea bargains. Okay. I know it wasn't what I originally said, but I'll I'll explain why I switched. What you originally said. I think I told you. Oh, I'll get to it. Okay. 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 So I have talked about plea bargaining a few times already in some of my previous cases. Where you take a lesser sentence. By uh, admitting guilt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. From Britannica, plea bargaining in law is the practice of negotiating an agreement between the prosecution and the defense whereby the defendant pleads guilty to a lesser offense, or in the case of multiple offenses, to one or more of the offenses charged in exchange for a more lenient sentencing. Oh, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Although in many court proceedings, it is common for plea bargaining to happen, it is still a controversial topic. To those who support plea bargaining, they argue that without the incentive of a lesser punishment, the justice system would be overwhelmed from the influx of court proceedings that would happen. Okay. Yeah. If you watch The Office, so this would be like a win-win-win situation with the plea bargaining. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you, I've never watched an episode of The Office. It's okay, we can still be friends. (laughs) So, the defense attorneys win, and the defendant win, and the prosecution wins. So, pretty much everybody involved, there's usually a positive outcome. Okay. So, when the evidence is not strong in a case, it saves the prosecution time and manpower while still improving their conviction rates. When the when there are multiple defendants, these agreements can also be used to testify against each other or other criminals. As well, if there is a chance of the, that the defendant could get off based on technicalities, these plea agreements ensure that the offender will still like serve some penalties. Okay. Okay. Then would it not be in their best interest to not take the plea bargain if it looks like they're going to get off on technicalities? Usually, like, 
technicalities really vary when it comes to law. So there's multiple different kinds of technicalities. So like courts taking too long or there's like maybe something going on with the judge. Like it, It's hard to say. Okay. So maybe not in the defendant's best interest in that case, but it's still good for the prosecution. So that's a time when the p- prosecution wins. Okay. Okay. Defense attorneys likewise also benefit from less resources being used in plea agreements. Closing cases efficiently is beneficial to both public defenders who have a massive workload and to private defenders as well. Like it can be beneficial. They're still closing cases. They're still retaining. If they're acting in their client's best interests, that's definitely beneficial for them. Okay. Okay. The accused also benefits from bargaining as the average sentence reduction is by about two-thirds. So when compared to someone who has committed a similar crime but has gone to court. Oh, wow. Okay. By accepting a plea agreement, offenders also do not have to face the stress and uncertainty that comes with a criminal trial. Especially in cases where the where conviction is almost certain, offenders do not have to face criminal trials and the media spectacle that surrounds these cases. This is true. So, like, get it done, get it over with. Like, yeah, I fucking did it, but what's in it for me, like, by saying this? And not to mention, it is also a huge um, tax benefit, like, for taxpayers not to have to pay for all these court proceedings. Because trials can be very expensive if they're very long, if there's a lot of work that goes into them to gathering the evidence. Mm-hmm. So there is financial savings as well. Okay. On the other hand, those who are against plea agreements argue that those who accept these agreements do not see true justice. There are three types of plea bargaining called charge bargaining, so the guilty has reduced charges. Sentence bargaining, so in cases like they're getting a lesser sentence, so some people who might be able to or go to trial for the death penalty might uh, do a plea bargain to get like life in prison. Okay. Okay. And then there is count bargaining, so there's fewer counts of charges or like lesser counts as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. All of these agreements result in lesser punishment for those who have committed a crime. Alternatively, when a person who is innocent of a crime is being charged with something that they did not commit, there's the possibility that they could be coerced into accepting a plea bargain. Mm-hmm. Either due to being held in a detention center and not being able to make bail, or not wanting to face further questioning, or simply just being bewildered by the lack of justice and like being stuck in this position that they're in, might, might just persuade them to accept a plea deal to get it over with. Do yeah, so they want to make the process end faster. So it is a it is an issue that does happen, especially when cops who are like working are just trying to get convictions. They don't necessarily care about who they're putting away as long as somebody's being put away. Yikes. Yes. Okay, so now on to my case. <laughs> so this is gonna be a very long one, so buckle up, but I'm very excited. When I originally started doing P, I was looking for partners in crime. Ooh, right. But I decided that 
I found the perfect pair, but plea bargaining worked better for this case, in my opinion. And I was already too late into my research to switch the case. So here we go. Okay. I'm going to be covering Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. I grew up hearing about this case. Um, There's actually people that I knew that lived in the area at the time that these crimes were taking place as well. So they told me about the amount of fear that was just happening that was around them. And like the woman that was telling me these stories, she was like, yeah, so she was like telling me around the campfire one night because like that's what I bring out in people. (laughs) How old were you? like i think a older girl guide so okay okay you weren't like five no i was not five but yeah i i just bring that out in people (laughs) okay but yes she was telling me the amount of fear that was going on in the streets and how people did not want to be especially young women did not want to be taking the bus alone and it was a very scary time no shit Mm mm-hmm I'm going to be honest with you, I've never heard of this. Yes, I'm almost positive that you have. The names just aren't there? Well, they're more well known as the Ken and Barbie killers. <sighs> and that name disgusts me, so I do not like referring to it to them as that. Yep, okay. Yeah. So, and re- honestly, until I got into true crime, I did not know that they were called... The Ken and Barbie killers. And like I said, that's an ick. Um, eventually I will cover like criminal nicknames, but I feel like how they were named based on their appearances is just like ick. It just makes it a lot really bad. Like there's a lot of very horrible nicknames given to serial killers or just any sort of kill- like crime syndicates. But I think this one just is disgusting. I personally, like, I feel like naming any serial killers just glorifies their actions. A hundred percent. It gives them ego. It's like, oh, yes, we've made it. Mm -hmm. Where even myself, I didn't know their names, Mm -hmm. but I knew their nickname. Mm -hmm. I, I think if we started giving serial killers, like, you know, the trash dumpster name, (laughs) Maybe, maybe, like, we would stop glorifying them. Maybe. Well, and, like, I think, too, with them, because this name didn't come out until they were caught, right? Because they didn't have names to the faces. So, as the crimes were happening, first, he was the Scarborough rapist. And then he, there, uh, when the girls were killed, they were known as the schoolgirl murders, so then when it finally came out that it was this attractive young couple doing the crimes, I say attractive, I mean, like, they're just considered physically attractive. I I personally feel like him being deemed as a rapist should have stuck rather than the Kenan the Barbie Ken- killers. Exactly. So, um, but it was the fact that the media were calling them these names after... And I don't know if it was to make a statement, maybe, about, oh, look, at these beautiful people are killers. Like, uh, I don't like it. End of the story. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, I'm with you. Okay. 
There, uh, so I did watch a really, really well done documentary called The Ken and Barbie Killers, The Lost Murder Tapes on Discovery Plus. No, okay. so it doesn't show, like, it shows footage, but not, like, uh, like footage of the crimes. Okay. It just shows footage that, of, like, them interacting with each other and okay. some really icky stuff, but I'll get to it. I love it. Okay. Let's start with Paul Bernardo, born August 27th, 1964, to Kenneth and Marlon. He was the youngest of three children, and he was described as the perfect child. As the youngest? Wow. Usually we're deemed as, like, the demon. (laughs) That's the middle child. Everybody knows that. Oh, no, it's the youngest. (laughs) You didn't grow up in a family of three, though. This is true. So it, Maybe three has a different dynamic. Three definitely does have a different dynamic. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Out of me and my sister, yes. I was not the perfect child. See, and you would have, if your mom had had one more, then you would have just been. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been the middle child. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sources say that he was the son that other mothers would want to have, as he was always smiling and was cute with his blonde hair. Ooh, okay. The family was middle class and financially stable. Perhaps this was a foreshadow to future crimes, but his father was charged with child molestation in 1975. Of his own children? Allegedly of his own daughter. Ooh, okay. Then when Paul Bernardo was 16 years old, his mother told him he was the result of an extramarital affair. Any ounce of respect Bernardo had for women vanished at this point. He was known to call his mother a whore and a slut, and she would call him a bastard, and just... Okay, that's healthy. Yeah. In 1982, Bernardo went to University of Toronto in Scarborough, where he perfected the art of picking up women. Did he take those courses, like how to peacock? and? So he was going to school for accounting, and he actually started working for Amway, which is... The cleaning products? Yeah, kind of like a MLM, I think. Okay. Right? And so there he was, like, really pushed into, like, that sales dynamic. Ooh, yes. Okay. okay. I love it. Mm-hmm. So being naturally attractive and charismatic certainly helped him with these endeavors, but he was also practicing lying and manipulating the women he would pick up. Once he had convinced a woman to go home with him, he would beat and degrade her. He also threatened to kill them if they told anyone about what he had done to them. Oh, that's okay. This was a repeating theme in his relationships, which would maybe last for about a month. And that was due to his violence and his need to control them. Okay, wait. So he would take a woman home from the bar, Mm -hmm. and then she would stick around for about a month? Not always. Like, he picked, like, he had frequent one-night stands, but there was also, like, sporadic relationships in between there as well. Okay. And, like, he would see multiple women at the same time and just... Well, I guess it would have been, what, the 80s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
1987, an ex-girlfriend who he had been seeing threatened to go to the police, and that's when there is a shift. He doesn't date as much anymore, but he still had dark urges that manifested in a terrifying way. Bernardo, 22 years old, when it was May 4th, 1987, this was the first time that he had stalked a 21-year-old woman as she was getting off the bus, and he ambushed her. Okay. He beat and raped her while verbally abusing her. She was in front of her parents' house when the attack happened. Oh, no. The next attack was only 10 days later when Bernardo raped a 19-year-old in the backyard of her parents' house. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, where was this again? This was in Scar- uh, Scarborough, Ontario. Uh, okay. Yeah. September 29th was the first shift in his M.O., as he broke into a 15-year-old's room and attempted to rape her, but was interrupted and fled when the girl's mother walked in. The poor mother. The poor girl. Poor everybody. Yeah. Was the girl awake? So he was threatening her with a knife and, like, oh. caressing her and, like, started biting her. Ew. When the mother walked in. Gross. Dis- Oh, yeah. This is disgusting. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Like, this, like, I went so deep in, and, like, the stuff that I found, I don't think I can say. No. Uh, December 16th, 1987, Bernardo struck again, raping a 15-year-old girl. At this point, the media is connecting the dots that the police have refused to and started running print on the attacks, dubbing the offender the Scarborough Rapist. He's getting younger. He is. And the fact that the police are not acknowledging that there is a rapist stalking young women is not good. Like, as much as I don't like the nicknames, like, thank God the media is there to call this issue to attention. Somebody's got to. Yep. So the police finally acknowledge that, there. hey, there is a problem. (laughs) And they put out a warning for young women to be vigilant, especially late at night and those who ride buses. Oh, yes. Just women be vigilant. Right? Never heard that before. Yeah. Fuck. Make sure you're not wearing anything revealing. You can't even be in your own home. Yeah. Breaking in. How are you supposed to be, like, extra lock your doors? (laughs) Yeah. What am I supposed to do? (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm sorry. That term is just so annoying. I know. I completely agree. Okay. There would be 11 reported rapes and at least six attempted between the years of 1987 and 1990 by the Scarborough Rapist. Once again, that's just reported. And he wasn't killing people. Not at this point. Okay. All of those who he attacked were threatened with a knife gagged with a cloth, and violently raped and beaten. This is going to be a little bit graphic, so if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead except for Courtney. <laughs> Feels so special. In one of the document, in the documentary that I had watched, um, it was said that one of the women's arms was broken from him stomping on it as she was lying down. Oh. He assaulted them in every way possible. And would insert 
items such as like sticks, knives, and like other various objects into these women. This was a monster who hated women. He religiously read American Psycho and idolized the main character. So he wanted to be that charismatic psychopath who could attract women and do whatever he wanted to them. Okay. He once told his friend that he dreamt of a virgin farm that would have a plethora of women there to please him. Ew. In October 1987, Bernardo met Carla Homoka. She was 17 years old and was attending a conference with her friend who she worked with, and that's where she met Bernardo. He was in the bar of the hotel that they were staying at. They slept together for the first time that night, and Bernardo was interested in seeing Homoka again. So he obviously wasn't aggressive to her then. Or she enjoyed it. I think she enjoyed it. Hamoka was the eldest of three sisters, and she was known to be a well-adjusted, pretty smart, popular girl. She had a fondness for animals that was leading her on a path to become a veterinary technician. Like Bernardo, Hamoka's outward appearance hid her dark secrets. The two began to date with Bernardo, driving an hour and a half away to visit Homoka, who was still living at her parents' house. Hmm. When he was over, Homoka's parents would insist he sleep on the couch, but <laughs> Bernardo would comply until everyone went to sleep. Then he would just sneak into Homoka's room. Oh, okay. People described him at this point as being like a little cocky, but otherwise like a really good guy, friendly, super great to be around. Um, very likable. Okay. Hamoka portrayed their relationship like it was a fairy tale, and that Bernardo was her Prince Charming. The reality is, is that the pair had a sadomasochist relationship, and Bernardo was controlling everything in Hamoka's life. Her diet, her clothes, how she did her hair, her friends, where she went, he would make, like, only he could drive her places. She had to leave work at 5 o'clock if that was when he said, like, it was his way or no way. Would you almost go as far as say maybe there's a little bit of grooming going on here? You know, possibly that could be, but I also think in her case, she was... Not necessarily just... She had a strong personality, is how I'm going to say it. She was known to be very stubborn. So I don't think in this case there is that much grooming involved. Oh, okay. Don't think so. Because that's always a thought that crosses your mind. And Ahamoka uses that to her advantage. It's her age. Okay. Well, not just her age, but being a woman and... Being a young, pretty woman. Okay. Okay. But he was demeaning, calling her fat, stupid, and ugly. Hamoka also knew that he was raping other women, and she approved of it. She thought that him being a rapist was cool. Ew. Uh-huh. No, I would like to think if Jeff came home and told me he raped somebody, there would be, um, some repercussions. Oh. Oh, yes. There's... Like, how do you how do you have respect for someone who obviously cares so little about, about women? Yeah, 
How do you build a relationship with that? Oh. Okay. There there wouldn't be another day in that relationship. No. No, fuck no. Oh, fuck. Okay. I am not here for it, Elise. <laughs> We've got a lot of pages to go. <laughs> <sighs> okay. The end of May in 1990, one of Bernardo's rape victims got a good look at his face and was able to give a spot on description. Good for her. This led to a composite drawing that was a spitting image for Bernardo, and I've got that one saved, so that will be, you can see it on Instagram and compare yourself, because it is the same guy. That's pretty good, especially when you're going through something very traumatic like that, Mm -hmm. to be able to be like, okay, look at this guy's face. Right. good for her. Yeah, and like, she described his eyes as being like looking into death. Like, In fact, one of the women who knew him from back in the day called the tip line and told police that this could very well be the rapist terrorizing the city. Police did follow up on the lead, and they left their card at Bernardo's home, requesting that he they requesting that he come and speak to them. Oh, that's that's the extent of it. Well, Bernardo actually followed through, and he went down to the police station for an interview. What a cocky piece of shit. Yeah, he acknowledged that he looked like the artist's rendering, but was adamant that he wasn't the rapist. He actually even offered DNA sampling. Oh, they didn't take it, I presume? Oh, no, they sure did. It gets better. Get ready to be so mad. Police were so thrown off by his nature that they didn't feel the need to investigate Bernardo further. And I'm not going to wait to spill this. But Bernardo's DNA that was taken in 1990 wasn't tested until February of 1993. Jesus. And it was a definitive match for the Scarborough Rapist. So it had, you know, police maybe pushed a little bit harder and said, hey, I know that we don't have like a lot of resources, but maybe you should just test this guy. We would not be discussing this case. Oh my gosh. Like, for real? Because he's charming? You're just like, ah, he couldn't have done it. Like, oh my goodness. Yep. They all deserve to have lost their jobs. Because how many more women went on to be raped in those three years? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm so upset. At this point, Bernardo and Hamoka were engaged, and Bernardo was spending a majority of time at the Hamoka home, and I got conflicting reports if he was living with them or if he was just over there the majority of the time. He was starting to feel bored. And he was resentful of the fact that he did not take Homolka's virginity and his eyes started wandering to her 15-year-old sister, Tammy. Ew. Now, this is disgusting for a number of reasons. But instead of saying, I think the fuck not, Homolka decides to give the gift of her younger sister's virginity to this piece of shit man for Christmas as a gift. I'm, I'm sorry. Did she get permission? From the 15-year-old sister, or did she just decide on her own? She just, she decided, she made the decision on her own. This a is garbage her- human being. But I guess your boyfriend's raping people and you're cool with it, so... Yeah. Gross. It's all awful. December 23rd, 1990, the duo act on their plan to rape Tammy Homolka. Carla Homolka takes drugs home from her work, including Valium, 
and a drug known as halothane, which is an anesthetic agent. The Homoka family was having a Christmas party and everyone was drinking, including Tammy. She had wanted to try a drink and Bernardo brought her one and then another one. And of course, these were drugged. Two, okay. These drugs had been laced with the Valium and soon she was unconscious. To guarantee that Tammy would not wake up mid-attack, Homoka took the took a rag soaked with halothane and held it against her sister's face. And like, that's awful. Like, it, that causes burns. Like, she had chemical burns on her face from the drug being put against her face. Oh, my God. While everyone was asleep upstairs, Bernardo and Homoka filmed themselves as they raped the unconscious girl. Tammy vomited during the attack, and she began to choke on it, and that resulted in her death. Oh, my God. Yeah. So... The couple panicked, they cleaned her up, they did laundry, they vacuumed, and then they called 911. No further investigation was done. Even though it's really clean, there's chemical burns on her face, but this was just an unfortunate accident. She had two drinks. Mm-hmm. Nobody thought to be like, the fuck did a teenager just die from two drinks because of why? Yeah. No. Somebody dropped the ball. And I'm not happy about it. A lot of people drop the ball. A month after murdering Tammy, the couple move out of the Homoka house to Port Dal- Dalhousie, a community in- located in St. Catharines. June 7th, a 15-year-old girl new- known as Jane Doe was invited by Homoka for a girl's night out. Since the two worked together... Jane Doe thought it would be a fun and just like a good day, just hanging out. She thought that Carla Homoka was super cool. So the two enjoyed a day of shopping and then they returned to the Homoka's house. Homoka proceeded to drug the 15-year-old and when Bernardo got home, she advised him that she had a wedding present for him. The pair took turns raping the girl and filming the attack. The next day, when Jane Doe woke up with a headache and was obviously sore, she assumed that she had just drunk too much and was just simply hungover. Mm-hmm. June 15, 1991, Bernardo was driving around the early hours of the morning. He noticed a young girl, 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey, who had been locked out of her house after missing curfew. Oh. Bernardo approached her and lured the young teen back to his car with the promise of cigarettes, and then he blindfolded her and forced her into his car. Bernardo woke Kamoka up to inform her that he, they had a victim. The couple once again filmed the rape that Mahaffey endured. In the background, Bob Marley and David Bowie was playing. No. Bernardo was telling Leslie that she was, quote, doing a damn good job, and how she behaved would determine what he would do to her next. Leslie's blindfold was coming off, and that is what sealed her fate. With the possibility of being able to identify her attackers, most believe that Homoka demanded that Leslie had to die. Because it's said that Bernardo claimed, like, Bernardo claims that he wanted to release her, but that Homoka insisted that she had to die as to not identify them. Okay. The couple would later blame each other for for who actually killed the girl. Homolka said that Bernardo strangled her, and Bernardo said that Homolka drugged her. The next day, 
the pair hosted the Homoka family over while Leslie's body was still in the basement. They decided the best way to dispose of the girl's body was to dismember it and encase body parts in cement. Oh, okay. They used a circular saw and Bernardo bought a dozen bags of cement mix and he kept the receipt, which was very incriminating. Mm-hmm. Once the body was prepared, the couple dumped the cement blocks in Lake Gibson. The heaviest blocks was 200 pounds, which they could not easily discard, so they just like left it near the shore. I really hope the body parts were like within it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The couple was married June 29th, 1991, in an elaborate over-the-top wedding. It was described as being likened to like a royal wedding. Oh. Yeah, like over the top with like the great big puffy sleeves. You know, I'm really like I know what you're talking about, but I cannot help to think about like white trash people. <laughs> you know, like very tacky, very tacky, always have a beer and a cigarette hanging out of their mouth like you know, with the perm and... Well, I mean, okay, so it was the 80s. Like, there, there is going to be the big hair. <laughs> that is... I just... I cannot help but think about this couple as, like, the epitome of white trash. I totally understand what you're saying. And I gotta say, though, they weren't. Like, that's the worst part. They looked very preppy. Oh, man. They looked like wasps, kind of. Okay. Like, very preppy... Very clean cut, clean shaven. Nobody would ever know. No, blonde, straight hair, very just well-dressed. Okay, okay. Not here for it. No. Okay, so in a twist of fate, that very same day as the wedding, a man who was going to Lake Gibson with a canoe stumbled upon a part of Leslie Mahaffey's remains. Because Leslie was considered a troubled youth, the police had ruled her disappearance as a runaway. But with her body now discovered in this sleepy Ontario town, the police realized that something evil was near. No shit. Mm. Like, could you imagine? She'd be like, eh, troubled youth. It's a runaway. Like. Well, and it's so horrible because that still happens. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I don't know. But, like, changing locks on your door because, like, or, you know, locking somebody out because they miss curfew. Now that mother has to live with that. Yeah. I don't know. I Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not a parent and probably will never be. But. You know, I can fully understand your frustration. A hundred percent. Of the kid missing curfew. But you never lock your kid out of the house. No. Never. No. Oh. August 10th, 1991, Jane Doe was invited over again to the newlyweds home where she is again drug-raped and had her attack recorded. Jane Doe. They never figured out her name? I believe she testified, but because of her age. Okay, so she survives. Yes, she does survive. Okay. Yeah. She did stop breathing, though, during the attack, and Homoka called 911. But when she started breathing again, she called back, being like, hey, it's okay, she's fine. Oh my god. Okay. April 16th, 1992, both Homoka and Bernardo were driving during the daytime to hunt for a new victim. They spotted Christian French, a 15-year-old girl walking home from school. Homoka got out of the car with a map and approached the girl saying she was lost. 
This gave Bernardo the opportunity to sneak behind Christian with a knife and forced her into her into the car. They held Christian for like three just awful days, during which time they raped and beat her. Of course, they recorded everything because Christian kept the same route that her like she kept to the exact same route every day. So her family noticed within fifteen minutes that she was missing. Oh. Okay. Yeah, and like search began immediately. Like they were out looking for her, and when her mom found one of her shoes in a church parking lot, she's like, "Oh no, mm-hmm. something awful has happened." So a huge townwide search began. After the third day, Kristen was murdered. <sighs> really hoping she didn't have to die. You know, I was hoping too. Okay. Once again, the couple would blame each other. Bernardo supposedly strangled her with an electrical cord, and Homoka allegedly had beat the girl with a mallet and then strangled Kristen to death. The autopsy report did say that her cause of death was strangulation, but she had been beaten to the point where she had internal bleeding that would have been life-threatening. Okay. The sadistic couple cut off her hair, washed Kristen's body to get rid of evidence, and dumped her body leaving it partially buried um off like a side road like pretty much just in the ditch and some speculate that they cut the hair off as a trophy but homoka later said that it was to prevent identification okay yeah obviously she didn't finish school then mm-hmm. okay so her remains were discovered april 30th 1992 Police suspected the death of the two girls may be connected after the remains of Mahaffey's body was further examined. They noticed that there was also the strangulation. Mm-hmm. So they were like, hey, maybe maybe it's connected. So at this time, it sounds like they're living in a house. Yep. Did, no, did none of their neighbors ever see anything? No. Wow. No, they didn't. Like I said, they, people who gave interviews were shocked that they could be living next to these people that could mm-hmm. do something like this. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. Because Christian French was abducted in broad daylight, there was a witness who told police that there was two people in the car that brought the teenager. And like unfortunately the description of the car was not good. But still, like two people, that's a big deal. That's something to look for. Mm-hmm. May 12th of 1992, Bernardo was questioned by police as he had previous restraining orders filed against him by former ex-girlfriends. Bernardo sailed through the interview, though, and he actually mentioned to the police that he was questioned previously in regards to the Scarborough rapist case. What a cocky shit. Right? Near the end of May, an acquaintance of Bernardo allegedly tipped police off that he could be the suspect. Um, hmm. then December 27th in 1992, Bernardo severely beat Homoka with like one of those metal flashlights, like the police flashlights. Oh. And it was on her bodies, her limbs, her face. Like she, she in the picture, she had like raccoon eyes and like her, her body was head to toe, pretty much just bruised. Holy shit. Do we know why? I think it was just progressing to that point shit she could not hide the bruising 
and when questioned by co-workers on January 4th, 1993, she claimed she had been in a car accident. Her co-workers not buying her story called her parents who forced Carla, oh sorry, yeah, who forced Carla Homoka to go to the hospital. It was at this point that she claimed she was a battered woman and decided to press charges against Bernardo. Hmm. It was during the questioning that alarms started to go off in her head. Mm-hmm. The police had wanted Homoka's fingerprints, and they also noticed that her Mickey Mouse watch that she was wearing was very similar to the one that Christian French was wearing when she disappeared. Ooh. So it was like the police were interrogating her. It was like five hours, and she realizes that, like, fuck, like, jig is up. Mm-hmm. I gotta protect myself. So that's when Carla Homoka started kind of like pointing her finger at her husband being the schoolgirl killer. This got the police attention incredibly fast since this was the biggest case in the country at the time. And police had no sus- substantial leads or evidence. Well, they did. It was sitting in a box from three years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, there was water evidence, right? Like, so most of the... Like, they washed the one body, and then the other one was dumped in a lake. So, as far as, like, physical DNA evidence, there wasn't any on the bodies. Like, that's all they had were the two bodies. Okay. So, they couldn't tie it in that way. And I guess nobody ever looked at the sister. No. No, because that was ruled an accidental death. Shit. Okay. Yeah. At first, Homoka was uncooperative, but after talking to her lawyers, they actually, like, tried to get her... Like complete immunity, if for her to um, for her to give testimony to what happened. Well, I guess if she's lying, saying like he beats me and I I can't leave him, but this is what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I guess it would make sense for her lawyers to want to try and get that for her. Mm-hmm. Well, like even her own lawyers, after talking to her, they noticed that there was more to her than what she was letting on so with that in mind they were like okay well complete immunity is off the table but the prosecution um countered with the possibility of a reduced sentence okay homoka tells the police that the assault of the two girls was actually also recorded and that is a game-changing piece of evidence is she not in those recordings we'll get to it okay we'll get to it it was just a matter of finding these tapes. Eight days after Homoka reported Paul Bernardo t- for the murders, Bernardo was arrested while he was at home. Police obtained a search warrant for the home to search for these tapes and any other sort of evidence. And after extensions and 71 days, they could not find these tapes. Hmm. They searched this house for 71 days and they could not find them. Shit. Their entire case rested solely on Carla Homoka's testimony. With this in mind, the prosecution wanted to beef up their star witness, and so had Homoka sent to a psychiatric ward to go through a psyche valve. It was determined that this woman, who was only 23 at the time, was suffering from PTSD after long-term spousal abuse and was suffering from battered woman syndrome. Hmm. Interestingly, though... The longer that the tapes were not found, and the more that police relied on Homoka, the more she began to be at ease. Hmm. 
So she went from being like very meek, very downtrodden to like revealing very like revealing stuff very casually and like matter of factly. She also told them about the death of her sister and that Paul Bernardo was responsible for the, that death. She possibly told police this as a way to stay ahead of the game, like just in case they did find the tapes that like, hey, at least, you know, I'm being honest with you. Hmm. The plea bargain given would be known by some as how the prosecution made a deal with the devil. <laughs> and it's still one of the most controversial plea bargains in Canada to this day. Hmm. It wasn't until July 6th, 1993 that Carla Homolka was given her sentence, 12 years in prison, to be served concurrently. She had pled guilty to two counts of manslaughter in the death of Leslie and Kristen and was given a, an additional two years for the death of her sister, Tammy. There was also a publication ban that prevented the media from releasing any details regarding Homolka's conviction. All that they were allowed to report was her sentencing. Holy shit. And they put that publication ban out there to hide details about her so that they could get Paul Bernardo. Like, if the public and, like, if people knew how involved their witness was in these cases, mm -hmm. like, there would be, it would be harder to get that first degree murder charge on him. Mm-hmm. What could have changed the outcome of this case was actually Bernardo's lawyer, Ken Murray. See, after the 71-day search warrant had expired, Murray, Murray had actually gotten permission to enter the house. Bernardo had given his lawyer the exact location of the tapes, which was, like, behind a light fixture. Oh, my God. And, like, up in the rafters. So he, like, reached his hand in and felt around and sure as shit, they were there. What a shit. After watching the shocking recordings, Murray, who should have given them over Kept to them. the police, yeah, he sure did, he decided to keep the tapes as a secret, as a way to undermine Homoka's testimony. He's like, yeah, you're going to come out here and I'm going to show them these tapes and you're going to be discredited. Ooh. This severely backfired as... 16 months went by before the truth came out that he had actually held on to the tapes after, you know, asking, like, hey, would I be in trouble if I use these tapes now in court? Would I, like, would that be bad? Yes, it would be. He actually had to turn them over, so he took himself off the case. Like, he's no longer Bernardo's lawyer at oh, that point. Okay. And he was actually charged. Like, they attempted to charge With him. obstruction of justice? Or? Uh, hiding evidence and uh, child pornography. Because technically it is child pornography what was on those tapes. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yep. So I believe that the charges were dismissed, but, like, people wanted to make him pay. Fair. Like, he was just holding on to that pretty much for shits and giggles. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he thought he was acting in his client's best interests, which I think Bernardo had told him to destroy the tapes, but he wanted... That would have been in Bernardo's best interest. That would have been in Bernardo's best interest, but without the tapes there, Murray was like, well, I can't prove that, you know, Carla is a liar, so she could have killed them. 
like that's what it looked like to me is that she's probably the killer and you're just a rapist so Mm -hmm. we'll get you off (laughs) a murder charge oh my god once Bernardo's new lawyer, John Rosen, Rosen, took over and received the tapes, he viewed them and turned them over to the police. So finally, the police have these tapes, and they are shocked. Wait, did she already take her plea deal? Oh, she sure did. She sure fucking did. They didn't wait until Bernardo was done being sentenced to... Well, because there were so many delays with his trial... Like, he was arrested in, what, 93, and he didn't go to trial until 95. Ooh. So there was a long time in between that period mm-hmm. just because of, like, court delays. Um, they wanted to, like, the prosecution wanted to make sure that they had all their ducks in a row. So it took a long time to go to get to trial. So in order for Carla to cooperate with the police, they had to give her this deal in their mind. Okay. Okay, that's how they, they that's how they could get that charge. I could definitely see why this is a very controversial plea bargain. It hundred percent is because had they had the tapes in hand, there's no way they would have given that deal. No, no way in hell. She would have been just as guilty. I wonder if they can go back and charge her for things that they didn't plea bargain with, though. We'll get to it. Okay. So, like I said, police had finally had the tapes and they were shocked to see their star witness was an actual active, and not just active, she was an enthusiastic participant in the rape of four girls. Homoka hadn't even disclosed to the police the rape of Jane Doe, which, like, was also recorded on those tapes. So rather than charge her with rape, they kept the original plea agreement in order to, like, just keep that appeasement to keep her testimony there they needed her testimony for that first degree murder charge so they could have charged her with rape but they didn't want to risk losing that testimony okay see so yeah see despite the evidence of the rape and other brutalities against these girls there was no recording of the actual murders on the tapes so the only evidence that the court had was her testimony that Bernardo killed these girls. After watching the shocking displays depicted, such as Carla Homoka dressing up as her younger sister Tammy and speaking to Bernardo in a sick role play weeks after her sister's death, they realized that they had to somehow make Carla a more credible witness. And, like, there's, in the documentary that I watched, like, you could, like, they showed that part where it's clearly Carla dressed in Tammy's clothes, speaking like how Tammy spoke to Paul. It was revolting. Ew. This, so, in order to make her more credible, and, like, don't forget, she didn't even disclose that she had raped, that they had raped um, Jane Doe. So... What the Crown did was they brought in a psychiatrist who specialized in battered women's syndrome from California to assess Homoka. And he stated that due to trauma, she suffered from amnesia and lost the memory of the assault of Jane Doe. Oh, lordy. So on to the trial of Paul Bernardo. The courtroom was packed after waiting for years to finally know about what had happened years ago. 
the jury watched the tapes in the courtroom. And while the public spectators could not see what was happening, they could hear everything. Christian French, in particular, was forced to watch as her father pled on the news for her safe return. And while she was being assaulted by Bernardo, he would force her to express love for him, Hmm. demanding that she call him master, that he loved her, and that he was the most powerful man in the world. That's disgusting. It's just, he is human trash. He's not even human. He's just trash. <laughs> After the trial, which lasted for four months, the jury actually had to deliberate overnight. And, like, the reason for that is Rosen, who is the lawyer that was defending Paul Bernardo, had done such a good job of making Carla Hamoka seem such a discredited witness, mm-hmm. which she wasn't, like, she wasn't a good witness. Yeah. Like, that's all they had, though. So I can understand the deliberation. Like, when you're talking about the burden of proof, like, you've got to deliberate with the evidence that you have, not based on your feelings. Yeah. So I can understand the deliberation. Okay. The verdict was given on September 1st, 1995, that Paul Bernardo was found guilty on all nine charges against him, including two counts of first-degree murder and two accounts of aggravated sexual assault. He was sentenced to life in prison, which in Canada means 25 years without the possibility of parole. He was also designated as a dangerous offender, which means it's unlikely he will ever be released. Oh, okay. As for Carla Homoka, she served her 12 years in various women's prison facilities in Ontario and Quebec. While she was in prison, she completed a bachelor degree in psychology. She was released on July 4th, 2005 with the following conditions. She was to tell police her home address, work address, and whom she lived with. She was required to notify police as soon as any of the above changed. She was likewise required to notify police of any change to her name. If she planned to be away from her home for more than 48 hours, she had to give 72 hours notice. Oh. She could not contact Paul Bernardo, the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, or that of the woman known as Jane Doe, or any violent criminals. And that was a thing with her in prison. Like, she was in contact with another known male murderer. And those conversations were turning sexual. Oh. Which really penalized her and that made her serve her full sentence instead of being released early. Which could have been a possibility. Okay. She was forbidden to be with people under the age of 16. She was forbidden from consuming drugs other than prescription medication. She was required to continue therapy and counseling, and she was required to provide police with DNA sampling. There would be a two-year conviction if she were to break any of her conditions. Hamoka also gave an interview with Radio Canada, in which the now 35-year-old, she spoke French, and said that she would be staying in Quebec, but did not specify where. On November 30th of 2005, all of Hamoka's conditions were removed, as it was deemed that there was not enough evidence to justify them. It was reported that she tried to change her name to Emily Kiera Tremblay in 
June of 2006, but the request was denied. It was also reported that she was married and that she had children. And, like, she lived abroad for a little bit because she wanted to give her kids a normal upbringing. She lived abroad where? Argentina. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's still surprising. Well, I guess she was not convicted as murder. She was got, she got a manslaughter charges. And she was eligible for, um... Don't you dare say a pardon. A pardon. Criminals are eligible for pardons after a specific amount of years have passed after that crime. So I believe she was eligible for a pardon in 2010, but I didn't see anywhere if she was given one or not, or if she tried to get one. But yeah, so that is the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka and the deal made with the devil. I did, in fact, know that story. I know you did, but I just wanted to... uh, Yuck. Say that one again. Yuck. Yeah. I I, I have no words besides yuck. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for your story. That was quite a long one, hey? That was very long. It is shorter, but I think it'll depend on our conversation. Okay, yeah, that's fair. We can, uh, we can go on. We can ramble sometimes. <laughs> but P is for possession. Oh! <gasps> Oh my god, yeah, this is going to be a very long episode, guys. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you ready? I'm so ready. So, there's long been the belief across cultures that beyond the boundaries of our known physical reality, lurking on the edge of our vision and what we think we know, are mysterious evil spirits, demons, and spectral beings beyond our comprehension. Lingering in the dark, as scary as this idea may be, There's also the persistent belief that these apparitions can push past the veil that separates our domains to invade not only our realities, but our bodies. For whatever reason, they seem to long for our physical form and wish to infiltrate within us and take control and own us. Oh, that is so gross. From beyond the wall that separates us from the world of demons, they creep And there at times seems to be very little we can do but to try and fight them and the unknown powers they possess. (gasps) Cases of demonic possession and efforts to fight these sinister beings are numerous and coming from all over the world across all religions. Yeah, that's wild that it's across all, like, all over the world, all different religions, that this is something that's so prevalent in humanities. Mm -hmm. Of course, they they are... Different terms and different, but at the end of the day, if we're going to just dumb this right down, possession. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm. So I got all this information from ghostschoolsandgod.com and mysteriousuniverse.org. And today we are covering the possession of Gottlieb Ditas. Oh, I don't know if I've heard of this one. I didn't, but it was a gooder. I'm very excited. In 1842, Germany, a resident of the rural German village of Modlingen, located within the Black Forest, lived a 28-year-old woman who became the center of attention in her neighborhood when strange things started to happen in her home. Raised within a strictly Lutheran family, Gottlieben, I'm sorry if I pronounce this badly, it's it's a lot of double letters, Gottlieben did us had an oppressively religious, highly superstitious upbringing. 
After her parents died when she was quite young, Didis lived with her siblings and continued to attend services run by a fire and brimstone, almost fanatical pastor. Oh, those are my favorite kind of pastors. Yeah. And theologian named Johann Christoph Blumhardt. So theology is the systematic study of the nature of the divine and more broadly of religious belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1842, the people living near the Didis house and passerbys began to notice strange noises emanating from the home during the dark hours of the night, some of which sounded rather jarring and decidedly violent in nature. Oh. Mm-hmm. Suspecting that there is some sort of abuse going on there, a doctor and some other locals stayed there for a night, witnessing things they could not explain, such as objects or furniture moving on their own, strange thuds and scrapes, and bangs that seemed to issue forth from the very walls, leading them to the conclusion the house was haunted. Well, yeah. That's amazing that people could hear it from outside. Yeah. Like, that is one angry-ass spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Whew. Yeah. The eerie phenomena continued, and on top of this, other strange things began to happen. Didis began to claim that she was being visited at night by the ghostly apparition of a woman holding a baby in her arms. She was prone to having sudden blackouts and on occasion going into an unresponsive trance-like state for an entire day before snapping back into reality as if nothing had happened with no memory of what had happened. Oh, that is eerie. Like, was she just like catatonic? She just like, she wouldn't move? Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. No, no, she moved. She So she was just walking around doing her thing. In a trance. Oh, that is awful. That's so much worse. I agree. There were whispers around the village that Didis' house was haunted, cursed, or both. Since the paranormal activity seemed to be focused most immensely on Gottlieben, she was sent to live with a cousin. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You're the most haunted, so you can leave now. <laughs> oh, I know. Like, sucks to be you. Yeah. But then it sucks to be the cousin. Oh, no, it followed her? And the haunting apparently followed her to the new home, leaving the other siblings in peace. (laughs) Okay, you are voted off the island. We don't like this cousin anyways. You can just fuck with his life or their lives instead. Literally. (laughs) Like, I don't blame the siblings for being like, peace out. You suck. But, like, this poor cousin just living their best lives. Well, especially in, like, the 1800s, right? Yeah, 1842. Pretty much, like, you were a cousin if you were, like, any sort of married somewhere in that line. So we don't even know how related this cousin is to her. No. I would be beyond bad. I agree. You come take your sister back now. (laughs) Like, did they tell them? I doubt it. I wouldn't. I'd be like, not my problem. (laughs) Um, she's um, she's got um consumption. She needs the fresh air. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it doesn't get better. Okay. 
the young woman's predicament captured the attention of Reverend Bloomhart. If you remember this. The, yeah. yeah. The uh, fire and brimstone guy? Yeah. Oh, good. The woman was a member of his congregation and reported many classic signs of being possessed. Mm-hmm. He came to visit Gottlieb Inn and concluded that she was, in fact, possessed by a demon. After witnessing evidence such as convulsive fits, speaking in different voices, intense bouts of uncharacteristic cursing, and profanity, also levitating. Wow, okay, like, so up until this point, I was like, you know, a lot of this could be explained by, like, mental or, like, physical health issues, but levitating, I think, is a little bit out there. Yeah. Yeah. Also, dark apparitions would appear around her. Yeah. So, while screaming about fallen angels and specific demons from hell, while he was there, she she just was having bursts of... Well, and the fact that they're specific, like, if it's just, oh, I'm possessed by the devil, but if it's, like, I'm possessed by the demon Fred, then, like, how do you know this name, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's this poor girl. So during her moments of clarity, she would plead to Jesus to be saved from the possession and to see the power of heaven to set her free from her torment. Oh, no. Her siblings also claimed that she would sometimes go into a trance and violently attack them for no reason, after which she would not remember a thing. So, hence why she left for her cousins. Yeah. Bloomhart took it upon himself to take her under his care and offer her spiritual support throughout her terrifying ordeal. Okay. During his regular visits, she confided in him some bizarre information indeed. Oh, Gottlieb Ben claimed that sh- when she had been just an infant, an evil spirit had tried to kidnap her, but had been driven away by the power of her mother's protective pit prayers. She also insisted that her aunt was a witch. The aunt of the same cousin? Personally, I would like to surmise that, but it didn't say. I see. Okay. I would like to fully believe that this cousin is a witch and could just be like, mm-mm. You keep your spirits to yourself. (laughs) My personal feelings, but here we are. Things progressed to the point where an entity allegedly would possess Gottliebin to speak directly with Bloomheart. During these conversations, the woman would speak in a voice that was not her own, and the spirit claimed to be one who had visited Gottliebin in the night. She told the pastor that she was a widow who had murdered two people during her life, and that these cruel acts had drawn the devil into her. Meaning that the case had become the rather curious situation of the devil possessing a spirit who was in turn possessing a human being. Okay, this is like the worst Skype call ever. Just like, sorry, this is my human window. Can you hear me? Like, (laughs) I'm trying to talk to the pastor over here. Holy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. However, this was not the only spirit who was apparently tormenting the young lady. Oh, no. More began to make themselves known as the months went on, until eventually there were hundreds of them residing within this young woman. Oh, my God. Interestingly, many of these other spirits made the same claim as the original that they were in fact victims of demonic possession as well, with some of them claiming to have sought refuge within 
the woman to try and escape the evil. What? That is bananas. Yeah. Like, it, it does make you wonder, though. Like, did the original possession come from the devil and then they died while they were possessed and now they're still trying to get the devil out so they're possessing someone else and now the devil's in the ghost and the ghost and the devil are in the new person and then does it just keep going down the line? Like, the worst nesting dolls ever? Yeah. I don't know. I would think that the... Well, obviously, I don't know the devil, but I would think that he'd have other things to do than possess already dead spirits. You know what I mean? But maybe it's like a tar. Maybe it, like, just sticks to your soul. I don't like that thought. I don't like that. But is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. I totally (laughs) see where you're coming from. It's just, ugh. Sorry, would you like me to call it a stain? Not, like, no, honestly. I don't want any devil goo on me. (laughs) (laughs) possess me once we done you can just take your shit and go <laughs> i think it poses a really interesting question though of like is it the devil or is it stained yeah spirits like, yeah after effects almost yeah oh so now bloomheart was in making deals with these <gasps> devils no now any deals made between bloomheart with the spirits for them to leave were always done if Jesus permits it. Oh, fuck yeah. Read the fine print. Right? <laughs> it's interesting to note that the possessing spirits were not simply sent to the abyss. Instead, Bloomheart exercised prayerful discernment in order to deal pastorally with these spirits, sending them to his church or other geographical locations where they were instructed to do no further harm. Okay, Fire and Brimstone, I'm on your side. Like, that's quite progressive. That is, yeah. Like, as long as you do no harm, I won't, like, you don't have to go to purgatory. You don't have to go to hell. Just go live your life. Yeah, no more harm. Yeah, so that was quite progressive of him. That was. So, he revealed that his conversation with the widow spirit was... She was under the influence of an evil spiritual being. She wanted to belong to the savior, not the devil. She applauded Bloomheart for his methodology of prayer alone, not resulting to apotropaic magical practices, which would have not worked. She condemned folk magic practice. Wow. Okay. She claimed to be in the chasm. The nature of this is not described, but no one can cross the chasm. I.e., is there an element of being stuck here? Okay. Hmm. She was happy to go and reside in the church building instead of Gottliebin, fading away over time. Wow. For a widow who claimed to have, like... Murdered? Yeah. Like... So I have a sink spider upstairs in the, um, in Waverly's bathroom. Mm-hmm. and she getting quite large but i just i refuse to kill him well you got another tenant in your house then yep <laughs> hope you're paying rent they're not they're they're making more work for me <laughs> but like they're not hurting anybody so the conversation between bloomheart and the apparent spirit of the man who had made orphans homeless raises the following he discerned that not all the spirits got their wishes granted. 
implying that God permitted the requests of some of these beings to reside in the church, and huh. others he did not. Okay. The lack of permission for a human spirit who makes others homeless to enter under any roof. Meaning, you made children homeless. Sucks to be you. Yeah, you get to suffer now. Yeah, God yeah. was not granting him any special permissions. Was he even asking for forgiveness? It didn't say, but I'm willing to bet you not. Okay, because I, like, I feel like that's a big part when it comes to Catholicism and Christianity, especially, is if you're not asking for the forgiveness, then you're not going to get what you want out of that, right? Mm-hmm. So. Maybe. So, alarmed with these conversations, Blueheart immediately began the ritual of exorcism which caused an escalation in the strange phenomena surrounding the girl. She became even more violent and unruly, needing to be restrained at times. Her venomous, blasphemous ranting became worse, and she exhibited the horrifying habit of vomiting sand, glass, nails, and copious amounts of blood at one point. Oh my god. No, 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 no. She told the pastor that some of the possessed spirits within her had left her body to go run amok thousands of miles away, where they had allegedly caused an earthquake. What? Bizarrely, news would come not long after that there had been, indeed, a devastating quake in the West Indies, which Gottliebman could have not possibly known about. Oh my which only further convinced Bloomheart that the possession was genuine and strengthened his resolve to follow through with the exorcism till the end. That is wild. Did it say how he performed his exorcism? So was it like him just saying prayers over her? I got that idea as well. Okay. Um, but I didn't actually like see it. Okay. I know... One article I found was a lot of people picking apart this entire piece and they had surmised what they thought were doing it. But I was like, your guess is really as good as ours. Okay. Okay. So I couldn't actually find what exactly he was doing. But by the way that it kind of is explained in here is he used just prayer prayers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Her convulsions convulsions yeah would last periodically over the next years and there would be regular exorcism sessions during which she was prayed over by the congregation always led by pastor bloomhart finally yeah finally in 1843 pastor bloomhart freed the woman from her spiritual captors And the exhausting exorcism dragged on for nearly two years, with the demon-infested spirits becoming more desperate and violent as their hold on the girl weakened. Wow. (laughs) Some of the spirits reportedly were defiant and threatening Bloomhard and his family with physical violence and death. Well, what's to stop him from being possessed by these spirits or any of his family members to be, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's always that possibility when you're talking about possession that the person performing the exorcism could be the next victim. Yeah. But I wonder if there's, like, 
a certain checklist demons need to possess someone. Maybe. I don't know. I don't feel like demons really would be that picky. I'd be like, I would assume that they'd be like, a body. But maybe like the body has to possess a certain quality, ability to hold the demon. So nothing's to say that it can't go and like possess another human. Mm -hmm. But it makes me wonder like, why do they choose these specific humans? For sure. For sure. I don't know. Lots of pondering this episode. <laughs> a lot. According to the account, these spirits actually ejected themselves willingly out of Gottlieb Lynn in order to attack her sister, Katharina. See? Who also became possessed as much as her sister had been. <gasps> Bloomheart was reportedly able to face off against both possessed women and perhaps realizing that they were no match for the priest left the women one by one. After which, Gottliebin supposedly said, Jesus is Victor. She reported feeling an overwhelming sensation of peace. Her demons had left and she was never bothered by demonic possessions, convulsions, dark apparitions, or otherwise again. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. So that is the story of Gottliebin Dias. That is a wild possession, Kalisa. I can't believe I've never heard of that one before. Yeah. Well, it, I don't think I've ever seen any, like, movies or documentaries, nothing in regards to it. So no. it was super interesting. That is super cool. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, guys, to this week's episode. Yes, please make sure to rate and review and subscribe. We definitely appreciate every single download that you guys give us. Yep. And if you have any questions or concerns or you want to share a story with us, email us at c4creepy at gmail.com. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday as we cover Cube. Ooh, I'm excited. I know. I think I, I don't remember what I've got down for that one, but I think I reached. <laughs> I reached. I love that. I love the reaching. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to See Is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast. Or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at L-E-X-X-A underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.